0: coming up. It just seemed out of place and out of character for the neighborhood and uh, somewhat chilling. So many unknowns, a terrible murderer is on the loose. You start locking your doors. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime.
1: Hi, my name is Marlene Carlisle. I am Sherry Harmon's sister and Joshua's aunt. Um, I... I want to speak on behalf of our family um, and thank these amazing people who have worked diligently and very hard and always took anything and everything we had to say to heart and ran with it. And these bulldogs that got through everything and worked for 33 years to solve this for our family We are forever indebted to all of you. You're amazing people, and every one of you have big, beautiful hearts.
0: There's a major development in a Georgia cold case that stems back to 1988, a young boy who vanished in March of that year. I'm joined by WXIA 11 Alive chief investigative reporter Brendan Keefe. Uh, Brendan, you know, I'm looking at this uh, photograph. It's an old photograph of Joshua Harmon holding a a dog. He's eight years old, and he's got blonde hair, and any case involving a a young child is just so difficult. This is just so heartbreaking when you look at this smiling young boy, eight years old, vanished so long ago.
2: Yeah, it's a really heartbreaking case, especially when you realize that his mom died uh, just a couple of years ago, actually uh, in 2020. And it was after she had posted on Reddit that she feared this case would never be solved. And for his mom to spend her whole life after his after his murder trying uh to get the investigators to solve the case for her not to see it come to the end where someone was charged is uh is doubly heartbreaking it's my understanding that y- you
0: heard about uh this major update, a development, and an arrest uh, from some of your sources. Before we get to that, I want to talk about what happened back in 1988, what we know uh, of what happened uh, to Joshua Harmon the last time he was seen alive.
2: Yeah, so, you know, it was your standard sort of suburban Atlanta you know, growing up story, uh, eight-year-old boy in a relatively safe apartment complex was out playing with some friends and then alone. And then he knocked on a door uh, around seven o'clock of one of his friends and said, Hey, can my friend come out to play? And the parents said, No, we're eating dinner. And he said, Okay, well tell him that we can meet in the woods by the fort. They had built, like many kids that age, a little fort in the woods out of sticks. And, you know, it wasn't really a fort per se, but to them it was. And that's the last anyone saw of him until his body was discovered. Uh, and he obviously had been beaten and strangled um, and murdered, and they couldn't find the killer for three decades.
0: So he, and his body was found just a few days, you said, later after, after he vanished.
2: Yeah. And it was in the woods right near the apartment. So, you know, the belief is that the crime occurred there and that's where his body was found. There didn't even really be uh, seem to be an attempt to try to conceal it or hide it. Uh, and yet the killer still wasn't found for three decades. In the early going and then over the years, were there suspects that came up? Yeah, I have a source close to the investigation who tells me that they kind of always knew who it was, but they didn't have the evidence. And also that's because... According to my sources, and this is supported by the mother's post on Reddit uh, before she died, the GBI had lost, that's the Georgia Bureau investigation, had lost critical evidence in the case um, just a couple of years after the murder. And when uh, you got to keep in mind that 1988, DNA was just coming on the scene. It certainly wasn't um, something that law enforcement had easy access to. And then even in the mid to early 90s, uh, you needed a lot of material to test for uh, genetic uh, sort of fingerprints to link someone to a crime. So the idea that this evidence disappeared shortly after his murder uh, and right before DNA became not only readily available, but very advanced today where small amounts of material can be detected and linked to a specific suspect. Um, that, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking to think that that happened right at that critical moment. And it seems to be the reason why this case could not be solved for so long.
0: So tell me what then you learned recently uh, before this all broke, and now a a lot of people who are aware and familiar with this case are following what's happening and what's happened, but what did you learn?
2: Yeah, I I think it's important for a little background to understand that I spent years investigating corruption and uh, malpractice at the Roswell Police Department here in Georgia. Uh, So the reason I say that is the praise that is going to follow is coming from a critic of the department in so much as I... Have done investigations that resulted in the last chief uh, suddenly retiring and a number of officers uh, getting fired uh, because of uh, mistakes and corruption. Uh, this police department did an extraordinary job solving this case. In recent times, despite the missteps early on that appear to have been brought out by that lost evidence with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Uh, And I can tell you more in a bit, if you want, about the amazing redemption story of one of those officers, because he was actually the reason I started investigating the Roswell Police Department. He became a detective. He's studying for his Ph.D. His name is Zach Kowalski. And uh, he is a forensics master and science master, and he appears to be the reason this case was solved uh, because they exhumed the body, which was a difficult thing to have to do, but they got a court order to exhume uh, the body of eight-year-old Joshua Harmon. And the genetic material that was recovered from the body uh, appears to have been the sort of linchpin of why this case was solved. And, and how recent? Do you know when that
0: was, when they exhumed the body and then they were able to make this DNA match?
2: Yeah, it's very recent uh, because uh, although I don't know exactly when the exhumation occurred, they immediately did a forensic analysis of the body and then they submitted the DNA uh, with a rush order. I am told that as soon as the DNA came back with a match, they immediately got arrest warrants. Uh, and the arrest occurred on Thursday uh, uh, of uh, last week. James Michael Coates, uh, 56, of Woodstock, Georgia. That's the match, according to police. My sources say he was in the back of an Uber And the SWAT team arrested him, uh, pulling them over into a Burger King restaurant parking lot. Uh, So you have this guy who for three decades, if he's the killer as accused, uh, uh, getting away with it for that long. And it turns out he is a convicted child molester who had served some 20 years in prison uh, for unrelated but similar crimes. And in fact, he had just been released recently. Is that right? Yeah, he's been very recently released. And and one of the cases I'm told he was serving time for was a case in Roswell, and he lived in that apartment complex. So all of the pieces were there, and this is why a source is telling me they kind of always assumed who he was, but without a confession and without that critical DNA evidence that is so you know important, uh, they weren't able to solve the case. Um, and... You know, now with the DNA evidence, and again, I'm told, even though in the news conference they said it was DNA evidence, you know, from that was collected from the scene. I do know from a source they uh, collected DNA material when they exhumed the body. Now it's not clear did they need the uh, Joshua Harmon's DNA to make a match to what they already had at the scene, or did they find the suspect or the killer's DNA on the body? That's a question that's unanswered right now.
0: DNA evidence, whatever it was specifically, was enough to get Coates arrested. He's back behind bars. I know some family members and aunt, I believe, has come forward uh, to speak to the media. You mentioned Joshua Harmon's mother has passed away. Who else are you aware of uh, from his family who's still around or in the area?
2: Yeah, we actually were going to reach out to the family because we reported this development before it was officially announced by police. They had called a news conference uh, and, and saying they had solved the cold case. But uh, my primary source from my Roswell investigations had Confirmed to us who it was, that it was the Joshua Harmon case, all the details of the arrest. Um, And then we were going to reach out to family as a courtesy before we reported it. And that's when we discovered the mother had died in uh, 2020. Uh, And then I'd also found that Reddit post. um, Now, there's no way to confirm she posted that, except that the details and the anguish that she gave uh, were just something only a mother Uh, would say a no. And she just seemed resigned to the possibility they would never find her son's killer. Uh, I don't know about the extended family. This has been so long, the apartment has even changed names. We did talk to a neighbor who lived nearby back then who seemed relieved. I've talked to adults here in Atlanta who were children back then, and this was sort of the the, the case that was used to uh, tell the kids, hey, when they were growing up in the late eighties, early nineties, you better stay in. You don't want, you know, there's a killer out there and you don't want the same thing to happen to you. And it's also important to point out that this isn't that far removed from the Atlanta child murders. Um, you know, it's not, it wasn't that great a distance between those two times. The difference though, is that the Atlanta child murders were, uh, were urban and the victims were black and this, uh, victim was white and was suburban. And, that doesn't matter here. There's no racial component to this other than this kind of brought home to what was then the sort of segregated suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, Hey, this can happen here too.
1: Josh was an amazing young boy um, who had an uncanny relationship with nature and with God. Um, So I know where he is and I know he's at peace. And uh, my sister never gave up ever gave up she kept going she made that phone call every few years to the point of probably bothering some people but she she was willing and able to do it and um i know she's smiling down on everybody here today and thanks you all so much
0: if if i heard you correctly uh the the story of redemption you mentioned that there was a
2: detective involved in the exhumation is, right? And what else can you tell us about that? What a fascinating story. Uh, So Zach Kowalski was a patrol officer in the Roswell Police Department about four years ago. When I started investigating the department, at the time, my source was not just confidential to everyone else. I didn't know who my source was. But this police officer within the police department contacted me to say, hey, one of our officers showed up drunk on the firing line, that was the tip, at the police academy. It's called Gypstick or the George Georgia Public Safety Training Center. uh, And an an officer from Roswell was there for uh, ongoing firearms, sort of in-service firearms training, and had showed up driving his police vehicle to the firing line armed. And the instructor immediately noticed, hey, this guy looks like he's drunk because that instructor was also a DUI instructor. They gave him a mobile intoxilizer there on the spot. He wasn't a Above 0.10 at that point. I think I recall it was somewhere around uh, 0.6, 0.7, uh, 0.07 uh, 0.06, 0.07, somewhere in there. Uh, and so legally he wasn't drunk, but he had a gun, and it's sort of a zero tolerance policy, certainly when you're in law enforcement and you're on the job. Uh, but when I got the investigative file on that, they had done all the right things. The, the uh, while the officer was not supposed to do that, the instructor immediately noticed it and saw it was wrong. The police department came down and picked him up. Uh, picked him up. They immediately suspended him, took his badge and gun. They did a full investigation, and at the end of it, they said, "You know what? We're going to suspend you for a few weeks. We're going to mandate that you do uh, alcohol uh, recovery, and then we're essentially going to give you another chance." So they gave him a second chance. And the reason is, in the investigation, it turns out this officer had discovered the bodies of two teenagers uh, behind a Publix grocery store in a dumpster where they had been murdered. And seeing that was a moment of trauma for him that led to his substance abuse, to his alcoholism. So the job had caused his alcoholism, and then the job gave him a second chance, even with this embarrassing incident. We actually didn't cover that story uh, because I saw it as I said, there's not a story here of systemic and institutional failure, the opposite. But... The police department did give that story to a competing TV station, thinking they would give them a fairer shake or a better sort of a better angle or, you know, more positive coverage. And it was the police chief bragging that he had given the story to another station after we filed a records request that got me looking into what else the department was hiding. Flash forward now four years And Zach Kowalski has completely rehabilitated himself as a police officer to the point where he's now a detective. He's the detective in charge of forensics, in charge of crime scenes for the Roswell Police Department. And he's currently studying for his PhD in forensic sciences. He's described to me as the kind of the geek uh, of the department who goes to the body farms and, you know, everything you'd see in the original sort of first season of CSI, that's who he is. And it looks as though he was critical to solving this cold case, which had, you know, everyone in the department knew about it, but he appears to be the one who took it, uh, gave it a fresh look and applied his scientific learning and knowledge. And ultimately, we now have someone charged 30, you know, in a case that was 33 years cold. Wow, that, that
0: really is an amazing story. I mean, there's so many elements to it. The fact that, you know, what strikes me is that the the Roswell Police Department was open-minded enough uh, to not just, you know, kick him off the force, but give him a second chance. Uh, and here he is solving potentially or being involved in the investigation that has hopefully solved a, a decades-old case is Really, really amazing.
2: It's stunning. And and I've actually asked the chief, uh, the chief who wouldn't be in that seat had we not done a series of investigations that got his predecessor to retire early. Um, I asked him, I said, can we do an interview with Detective Zach Kowalski? And I explained, I said, look, you have no reason to trust me because we certainly have caused some aggravation for the department by exposing its failings. But, you know, we don't need... Uh, we don't need the police department's help to to tell negative stories. We just have to file records requests. In this case, we need their help to tell a positive one. And I would love to tell the story like we just did, but sort of telling it through his journey because um, it's sort of an unspoken taboo within law enforcement Substance abuse and alcoholism, but the job is stressful. The job can lead uh, to that kind of thing. And there's also a stigma. You don't want to come forward and get help because it can affect your career. Brendan
0: uh before I let you go uh, has the suspect entered any type of plea do we have any idea what's going to happen next
2: no I'm I'm not uh, up on exactly where the the case uh, stands what I can tell you is this is occurring in the Fulton County justice system which is uh, nearly hopelessly backlogged uh, typically what they do is have a first appearance as required within 48 hours uh, usually that the first order of business is getting him counsel and then And usually it's an automatic uh, not guilty plea to start. And then they'll go forward with the probable cause hearing unless he waives it. Um, And then the possibility of uh, some sort of, you know, plea negotiations aren't out of the question because there's always the death penalty on the table uh, because they could argue some circumstances that would rise to that level. Uh, But we may be looking at a trial in the next year or two. All right, Brendan Key from WXIA 11 Alive, Chief Investigative
0: Reporter. Thanks so much for talking to us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday, Monday through Friday. Be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a great review if you like what you hear. And if you'd like to learn more about the show and vault studios, check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault.